Amen. Well, everybody, take your seats. Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. Um, I think Christians ought to be hawks when it comes to spiritual warfare. If you're a Christian, you are already engaged in the spiritual battle for your faith. Even getting here this morning may have been like that. Many of you said, I don't know if I'm going to go today. I said that. I said that this morning, and my wife said, no, you got to go. You're preaching. <laughs> I said, yeah, but nobody listens to me. You've you're got to do this. So it's always a battle. It's always a battle. Now, it's not always a battle, like 100% of the time. There are times God is gracious, and he, he brings us to the rear so we can get some rest and relaxation. <clears throat> but nonetheless, in our broken world, we've got to wonder, how, how do we discern the difference between just the normal problems of life versus some sort of cosmic mafia coming after us? Um, you know, those head-spinning troubles that happen, and it's out of the blue, losses that come our way. And that was actually the question that was sent to us um, during uh, preparation for these summer series, and, and this is the way I put it. It was a, you know, it was a longer question, but I thought, you know, here's, here's how it, it looks. Is it a temptation or a trial? Is it Satan or is it God? And how do we know? And that was really the question that was posed. So that's the subject we're going to tackle this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that you don't leave us without some instruction to know what to do, how to respond, and most of all, how to, how to have faith for those times when we are in um, spiritual warfare, struggles, afflictions, and that sort of thing. So as we come to your word this morning, we pray that uh, you will teach us what we need to know and help us to obey what we learn. We pray this in your name, and everybody said, amen. Now, most of the time, most of us want to go through life seeing our plans work out. We, we make certain kinds of plans, you know, what sort of education, what sort of job, where to live, that sort of thing, uh, even who to marry. Um, and have you noticed that most of our plans don't necessarily align with God's plans? God's plans tend to look like this. Our plan is the straight line. God's plan is the crooked line. And as all sorts of detours and rerouting, you know, the only thing that's not up here is that GPS voice that says recalculating. But that's kind of how our lives go. Um, but the thing to remember in all of this is that this is God's plan. Now, I used to put these biblical words, I'll call it the three T's, tests, trials, and temptations, I put them into three different categories early on in my Christian life. I put tests in the category of God's column. I put temptations in the category of Satan's column. And trials in my category because it was my fault anyway. And uh, that, that seemed really neat, seemed to work out for some time. But over time, I began to wonder if it was not just an inadequate definition or explanation, but was it even biblical? Um, over the years, I've collected probably a dozen or more books on the subject of spiritual warfare. It's, it's been a, a very interesting subject for me over time to study. 
Um, and, and I've learned one thing after all these years, tests are still tests, trials are still trials, and temptations are still temptations. So I ended up where I started. But what did change over time was an understanding that I had of how all of these things work together. And it came because of a view of God's providential sovereignty as the guiding wisdom in all of them. Whatever the detour, whatever the loss, whatever the rerouting that was going on, it was always God's detour. It was always God removing something that needed to be removed, even if I cherished it. It was always God's training me through an affliction. And so this sermon is going to look at these three T's, this temptations, tests, and trials, through the prism of three principles. And those principles are this, the puzzle to be solved, a pattern to discern, and a promise to count on. <clears throat> Pardon me. So it's a puzzle to be solved, a pattern to discern, and a promise to count on. Now, everything in the Bible is for our instruction, and, and we know that there are there are many of God's people who have been put through serious temptations and trials in the Bible. I want to talk about a couple of them, but I want you to, I'm not going to read the scriptures, but I, I'm going to tell you the stories, and I want you to see if you can see what the puzzle is. And then at the end, I'll tell you what the puzzle is in case you haven't got there, or I just haven't been that clear. So when we think about temptations in the Bible, I think the number one temptation that comes to mind is Jesus' temptation uh, in the wilderness with Satan appearing. In fact, Mark and, or, I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke say that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. This is Diabolos. He's the slanderer. He's, he's everything that is opposed to God. He, he hates God. He opposes God. He opposes the Son. He opposes the Spirit. He opposes the church. He opposes the gospel. And he slanders all of them. And this is the being that faces Jesus in the wilderness. Now, that word there for temptation is a very interesting word because it can be translated as well, test. The context always determines what the translation will be. Clearly in this setting, this is a temptation. Jesus is being tempted by his adversary and our adversary in order to abandon the mission that God has given him. But this word can also show up as test in other places. Now, test, just as a, as a word, uh, even, even the Greek word, it can be a good test or a bad test. So, for example, if manufacturers are building or making some sort of a beam for a bridge, you want that beam, you want to be sure that beam will hold up under the stress and strain of the many cars that are going over it over a number of years. If that beam fails the test, it will not be installed because if it is, it's a danger to everybody who who drives over that thing. So in that sense, a test is a good thing because it tells you this is not a good beam. Or if it is a good beam, now you know it can sustain whatever um, uh, weight and, and duration that is required for that bridge. In Jesus' temptation, three were involved. The Holy Spirit led Jesus, Satan was there, and eventually, some angels showed up. Now, Jesus absolutely passed that test. 
Now, perhaps the second most considered test in the Old Testament is Job, and the opening chapters are pretty clear about what's going on. Um, All of the angels are coming before the Lord, and in that group is Satan himself, and uh, God sort of starts the conversation, which he should, And 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 he turns to Satan and he says, have you noticed my servant Job? He's honest, he's upright, he's a good guy, he hates evil. And the devil, slanderer that he is, he comes back and says, well, of course he is. You protect him. I can't even touch this guy. But I'll tell you what, if you just give me one chance, he will curse you to your face. So God says, all right, go ahead. You can touch his family, you can touch his fortune, but you cannot touch him. And so we know what happened. The second chapter opens with nearly the same dialogue. And God says, so, have you noticed my servant Job, he, uh, he passed your test. He passed my test. Um, and, and the devil says, well, if, what do you expect? You think he loves you out of the goodness of your heart? You let me touch him, and I promise you he will curse you to your face. So God says, fine, go ahead. You can do that to him. You can harm him physically. You just cannot kill him. And we know what happened. Now, now there, was, there, there was a little spotty for him after that, but he passed that test. That test was passed by Job because he said, basically, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now, the other test that I like in the Old Testament is Abraham. I kind of identify with Abraham. It's kind of like my life. So here's how I would put Abraham. Pass, fail, 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 pass. This is what happened. God calls Abraham out of the uh, hometown he lived in, Ur of the Chaldees, pass. And then he gets into a little bit of trouble because there's this king that wants to take his wife. So he says, listen, when the king takes you, just tell him, you're my sister. I don't want them to think you're my wife because they'll kill me and take you. Just, you're my sister. Fail. But it happens a second time. Fail. Then there's this guy named Ishmael. Fail. But then by the end of his his life, towards the end of his life, Genesis chapter 22, monumental pass. God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar. Abraham doesn't say a word. He does, he obeys, he does exactly what God wants him to do. And then just as he's ready to plunge the knife into his son, God's angel stops him and says, don't do it. Take your son off the altar. I have a substitute for your son, your only son, and sacrifice that to me. Pass. Major league pass. Then, of course, there's the very first temptation of the Bible, absolute fail, and here we are. We're on this side of it, Adam and Eve. All right. Um, Now, there is something I want to say here about this pass-fail situation. Just remember that the basis of our salvation and the basis of our being kept by God has nothing to do with pass-fail. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. This this has nothing to do with our salvation, this pass-fail test, temptations. All of that has to do with our sanctification, however. And that's, we always have to remember that. And I'll explain why at the end of the sermon. So, I want to go to the one place where this puzzle 
of who is involved in all of his test trials and temptations shows up the clearest. I'm going to tell you the story first, and then I'm going to look at the scriptures. Here's the story. David wants to have a census of all of the people of Israel. And the story also tells us that God is angry with Israel over some sin that's undefined. We don't know what it is. And we don't know if David's taking a census is the sin or a, a, a result of the judgment of God on the nation. All we know is there's a lot of sinning going on, and God is going to correct. He's going to punish his people. So the, the story unfolds, and uh, uh, David, at finally, at some point, David says, it's, it's me, Lord, it's me. I, I have sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O oh Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant because I acted foolishly. Now, he's praying this to the Lord, and at some point immediately after that, God sends Gad, a prophet, to talk to David and tell him what God's plan is going forward. And what God said to David was, you have the option of three different kinds of punishment. The first option will be seven years of famine in the land. The second option will be that you will be on the run from your enemies for three months. The third option will be a plague of three days uh, in the nation, a pestilence. Now, David was very distressed by all of this. Um, in, in, in his answer, you can tell he, he, he really doesn't know what to do, how to choose. And all he says to the Lord is, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And in other words, David is saying, Lord, you know, you know. So God decides to send the pestilence for three days. 70,000 Israelites nationwide died in this pestilence. Now, at some point, David knew that the angel that God had sent to bring this, this pestilence and this destruction on the nation was just about to settle that with Jerusalem. He was, his sword was, the picture is this angel has his sword drawn over the city of Jerusalem, and he's about to bring punishment. And David gets news of this, and so he goes into action, and he says, I'm going to offer to the Lord uh, uh, an offering so that this plague stops. And so he, he goes out to this uh, farmer's field, which his, the farmer's name is Aruna. And he says, I need your land so that I can build an altar to the Lord and sacrifice to him. And Aruna, being you know, a man of God, he says to the king, hey, it's all right, just take the land. And David says, no, 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 no. I will not offer anything to God that doesn't cost me something. And so he buys the land from Aruna, he offers a sacrifice to the Lord, and the angel stops the plague. Now, the point of that story is what happened at that spot. It's sort of like theology by location. On that very spot, Aruna's threshing floor, where, you know, he threshed the wheat and produced his, his product, on that place on that spot of land was the same spot of Mount Moriah where Abraham was offering up Isaac. That's the spot where God said, no, no human sacrifice. I will give you a substitute, a ram to sacrifice for your son, your only son Isaac. In just a few years from this point of Israel's history, David's son, King Solomon, is going to build the temple on that 
very spot. That's the temple where sacrifices were offered up on a daily basis to, uh, for the sins of God's people that he might have mercy on them. That's the same spot. And guess what? Jerusalem was the place where the ultimate sacrifice for all sin was carried out in Jesus. This is a story of redemption and grace powerful enough to overcome sin. The outcome was wonderful, but the process, it was very hard. Now, um, I couldn't remember the guy's name before, but it was Paul Harvey. Somebody had to remind me. I couldn't remember Paul Harvey's name. Remember how Paul Harvey used to do, and now the rest of the story? Okay, we're going to look at the beginning of this story. This is how this, this story begins in two separate places in Scripture, 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. Now, this is the first uh, Chronicles 21 reco- uh, record of how this whole event took place. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. There's the census. And now we know who did it. It was Satan. Satan inspired it. He incited it. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go, number Israel, and Bathsheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. So the writer to the Chronicles tells us that it is Satan who did this. He's the cause. He's, he's the troubler of Israel. He, he is the one who, who, who um, uh, brought all this trouble on Israel that God was going to judge. But I want you, to, I'm going to fast forward through these. I want you to look at the 2 Samuel 24, verse 1 account. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David. What? In 1 Chronicles, it is Satan. In 2 Samuel, it is God. Who is it? Why is it written this way? These are the sorts of things that people say all the time. See, your Bible has a lot of contradictions. No. We have to discern what this is about. So here is the pattern to discern. Um, You can see this is puzzling, right? God, Satan, David, who, who is it? When you put them side by side, it's got to make you wonder. And especially, especially knowing that God, God does not incite people to sin. This is what James chapter uh, 1, verse 13 says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it's not, God is not guilty of enticing people to sin. So what's going on in this passage? How do we, how do we unpack this, this puzzle? Well, one thing we can't do is divide up responsibilities. In other words, we can't say that, you know, God is this percentage responsible, Satan is this percentage responsible, and David or me, I'm this percentage responsible. No. What we have to understand, in order to bring these two, two, two stories, uh, two introductions to the same story together, is that all three parties, God, Satan, and David, are totally involved in the event but each of them operating in their own sphere. So, here's how I would state it as a principle. God's purposeful and providential sovereignty initiated the judgment due to the nation at this time. 
and for correction for David by using Satan as his means of judgment and correction with the outcome and the purpose of crushing all sin by the grace of revealing the location where the ultimate sacrifice took place. Basically, God overruled the sin by his own grace. We see this most notably in the crucifixion of Christ. Now, it's, it's, it's what Peter said. He said, you know, Jesus was delivered up by the, uh, according to the divine plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So all of those people who did that, they were still guilty. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held. Think about this. All of those people involved in the conspiracy to have Jesus crucified, crucified him so that they too might be saved by that event. That's just astonishing. God overcomes by this redemptive grace, this terrible crime. This is the worst crime in the universe ever. And that very crime of crucifying the Son of God became the salvation of anyone who would trust in the Son of God. That's what God does. That's what God did in David's story. Redemptive grace overcoming all kinds of evil. So when I got to this point, I, I just, I marveled and I said, you know, that's just, that is truly amazing. How do you, where do you go from here? Well, there, Peter gives us a way to respond to temptations, trials, or tests, and a promise to stand on. In 1 Peter 5, 6 to 10, Peter gives us two directions for, for a proper response in spiritual battles by standing on one monumental promise. And here is the first proper response. Humble yourself. He says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, and this is an interesting picture because what he's saying is tie humility to yourself. And I, I gotta think he's thinking about Jesus when he tied the apron around himself at the Last Supper to humble himself before those disciples and, and, and wash their feet. So, Clothe yourselves, tie yourselves, all of you, to, to yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So here we have Peter, who, when we saw him most of the time in the Gospels, he was not particularly humble who has learned what humility means. And for Peter, humility is at least two things. First of all, he says it right here, casting your cares on the Lord. When, when Peter wants to define humility, he says this is what it looks like. You're trusting yourself to God. You're not trying to figure this out for yourself. You are actually asking for help, something that Peter had a difficult time doing most of his life, and me too. But the second thing about humility that Peter learned is that everything that he had was a gift from God, just like you and me. Everything we have. Can you name one thing in your life that you could point to and say, I did that. God did not. If you can do that, you don't know the gospel very well. The fact of the matter is everything that we have in life, material goods, spiritual goods, 
our husbands, our wives, our kids, our jobs, our church, everything comes from the hand of God. And pride will say, but I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied. What is it that you have from God as a gift that is unsatisfactory to you? How would you answer that if you were thinking about your spouse? Your spouse is a gift from God to you for multiple reasons. Humility understands everything that I have, I have received, and it's been given to me by my God. Now, Peter knew something about pride. You know, he said, I don't care what other people do, Lord. I'm with you all the way. I'd even die for you. He wasn't with Jesus all the way, and he didn't die for Jesus all the way. Someday he will die for Christ but not at that point. But, but he was not crushed under that sin permanently because Jesus told him he already prayed for him and that he would restore him to the purpose that God has for him. And so Peter is now able to say in these verses, humility is where you will find Christ stepping into your affliction, your troubles, your temptations, or your trials. Humble yourself to trust him. Now, the second proper response is to resist the adversary. Peter goes on and he says, um, oops, I'm sorry. I've got you very confused now, don't I? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Christians work together in a resistance movement. We are not lone rangers. Every resistance movement in world history, wherever there was a war, it was always organized in order to find out the secret dangerous maneuvers of the enemy. Say they were vigilant against what the enemy would do. And our enemy, the adversary, Diabolos, Satan, the slanderer, the liar, he is sly, he is stealthy. I looked up how lions, I, I like those nature shows, you know, where lions are coming out and devouring animals. I know, it's gruesome, but I kind of like it because of the strategy of lions. It's fascinating. What, what I found out was interesting was female lions hunt in a pack. Male lions, not so much. They might join the women, the, the women, they might join the females every now and then. Because what, what they do in the pack is they'll cut away the weak member of that herd and then, and then pounce. Most of the time, male lions, they're stealthy. They don't want you to know they're around. If you have a cat at home, you've seen this action, right? Creeping, hiding on, in the grass. And then this animal, absolutely unaware, there's, there's this lion in the grass, gets really close closer, closer, and then ah, like that, and it's all over for that animal. Guess who that is like? Satan, our adversary. He is hiding in the tall grass, waiting for you to get close. And then when you're close enough, he springs up out of you, uh, on you. So we need each other. In order to be vigilant against this kind of strategy of the enemy. And, and Peter says, this strategy of being watchful 
is done on our knees. Resistance requires watchfulness. It's the same thing Jesus said to Peter, James, and John in the garden before his arrest. He said, watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. Prayer is the watchful discipline that firms and settles our faith in the Lord. So our vigilance, our watchfulness, our um, uh, defense and resistance is done on our knees. In other words, we pray. We pray for each other, we pray for ourselves, we gather other people to pray for us. And the thing about being on our knees is it's a demonstration of where our faith is. Our faith is not in ourselves. I'm not looking into myself in order to gut it out, get through this, win the day, whatever. My faith looks to Christ. That's where faith comes from. Faith that is true faith grows in the strong ground of God's promises. So when our faith is grounded in the promises of God, we receive the outcome of that faith, even going through suffering. Faith, faith inspires an expectation of God's grace. And that's the next thing that Paul says. Expect grace. Here's what he says in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So grace from God in our temptations, trials, and afflictions flows to us to accomplish four things. And the first thing, and, and all these four things happen to Peter. If you reflect on, on his, his life, uh, especially after the crucifixion, these four things happened in Peter's life as he, in his interchange with Jesus there on the shore, which I believe is in John chapter 21. The first thing is the grace of God restores our purpose. Jesus didn't say, okay, Peter, you're done. I'm sorry, can't use you anymore. I mean, I forgive you, guy, but you really blew it. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He had prayed for him way back in the Lord's Supper, uh, at, the, at the Last Supper, and he said, when you return to me, you will do this. There's the restoration of Peter's purpose because of the grace of God. These tests and temptations, they, they act like, like a surgical room where God puts things right that have been wrong in us. You know, Psalm 139, it says, it Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me. And if there is, and there will be, lead me in the way everlasting. That is the solution for, for our lives, right? There's something wrong. It's like a broken bone, and the Holy Spirit has to get inside our heart and set that bone right, and then lead us in the way everlasting, the way of obedience after he sets things right in our hearts. The second way that grace comes to us is uh, to confirm, oh, I'm sorry. There we go. To confirm our identity. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a trial or a temptation or a struggle of any kind, I forget everything. I forget uh, who in the world I am. My head is spinning, right? And I and I've lost. I don't even. I barely even know my own name. So how in the world would I remember who I belong to? That's the struggle. When we're in an affliction like that, or a struggle, or a temptation, we have to remind ourselves who do we belong to? Whom is our Father? We have to remember what John said to the church. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. This is the gospel. We should be called the children of God, and we are. 
Oh, my. Remind yourself in the middle of all that crud that's going on in that trial, to whom you belong. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will not fail you. The third grace that comes to us strengthens us for endurance. And this is an unusual uh, word that Peter uses here, actually. It's used only one time right here. Uh, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like he made it up, but he didn't. But the word is strengthens. Most of the time, it is for, he uses the, the, the word is used in the New Testament for weakness, like no strength. That's, most of the uses of this word are that way. Only Peter here turns it upside down. He turns it on his head, and he says, this is what God will do. He will pour his strength into you in your adversity so that you may endure. He will pour strength into you, into that weakness that you have, so that you may endure. God's grace sustains our ability to resist the devil when we're tired and we don't think we can go on another step. Just look for it. Expect it to show up. It will come to you. It may come to you in the form of a Christian friend or a member of your family who says, you know, you, you look like you're kind of under it. Is something going on, something I can pray about, something I can help you with? That may be God's way of strengthening you. So, you know, don't do, don't do what we often do. No, fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. No, so no worries. See, that's not humility. That's pride. Don't worry about it. I can handle this myself. The fact of the matter is, you can't. Neither can I. So let's get help. Let's get help. The final way that grace comes to us is that our hope in God is established in Christ. Christ is the foundation. Christ is the foundation of of the gospel that we preach to ourselves and we tell ourselves. And we will not be moved from this hope. We will never be moved from this hope. We will be kept in this hope by the power of God. Now, these four words, they tend to overlap and spill over into each other. And pretty much they say one big idea. God's grace will sustain us in every trial, in every test, in order that the purposes that he has for us will be completed. He will do this because his glory is on display and his name, his reputation, is on the line. And he is jealous for his glory and he is jealous for his reputation. So I want to close by praying. I, I thought, as I o thought over this, this sermon, I, I thought, you know, f faith is the issue here for Peter. He's making it the issue. And the Bible has ways of talking about faith that has a variety of moods, strong faith, weak faith, that sort of thing. And I thought, well, I bet you there are people here over this weekend who kind of fall into those categories. So I'm going to pray for you and for anybody that you know that you might think of that is in any of these categories that they might be strong, made strong in faith. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that faith matters. And our faith matters to you. And so we want to thank you for all of those people that we know who are strong in faith. They are a blessing to us. They are a blessing to the fellowship. 
Use them as your conduits of grace to build up the faith of others. We pray that you will keep them from presumption and grant them the power to find satisfaction in you above all things. But Father, we also know some who are weak in faith. Uh, Like all of us, uh, we are in need of more faith. Help those that we know to successfully battle the doubts and the unbelief that wars against them. Give them a proper fear of unbelief so that they might stand strong in the faith. And we also want to pray for those who are lukewarm in their faith. Father, you created us with the capacity for deep affections to love and desire you, to delight in you, to fear you. And we pray that those whose affections for you have cooled off over time because other loves have crept in, that you'll rekindle in our friends a deep gratitude for your son's great sacrifice that even pays for the sins of lukewarm faith. And we pray for those needing saving faith. Father, we pray for those who need to know Christ. Grant that our friends or family members will receive the gift of repentance and the knowledge that Christ in all of their sins, past, present, and future, have forgiven them and thrown those sins as far as the east is from the west, and no one, no one will ever be held accountable for them when they trust in you and help them to follow you faithfully. So, Father, when we find ourselves in temptation and trials and tests, meet us there with the help of your Spirit to overcome every temptation to defeat every sin that comes to defeat us, deceive us. And there let us find the richest blessings of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's all stand and sing together before we go.